Welcome to The Disenfranchised, helping you to find a career path away from employment by exploring the franchise community. My name's Ed Pennell, and I'll be speaking with the entrepreneurs, experts, and leaders from across the franchise community, discovering their life stories and hearing their tips for success away from the typical nine to five grind. On this episode, I'm really happy to say that I'm interviewing Scott Greenberg, who is an ex-franchisee for the American brand Edible Arrangements, where he spent 10 years building his business, delivering customer service excellence, and was award-winning for it. He's also the author of a book called The Wealthy Franchisee, and is a keynote speaker with his most recent talk being for the British Franchise Association's Leadership in Action. I was really looking forward to speaking with Scott because he comes with a a high pedigree within the franchising industry and I thought there was quite a lot I could find out from him about what it takes to be, in his words, a wealthy franchisee. I also wanted to understand, you know, any advice that he could give to other people as to how they can build out their own business once they're inside a, a franchise brand, whatever it may be. I think we covered quite a lot in this uh, interview, which is really interesting, really insightful and really useful. So I'm excited to share it with everybody. However, um, we did have a few internet issues. So there may be a couple of moments where the, the internet drops out, but I think it doesn't really take away too much from this interview. And, and actually, it's well worth sticking with all the way throughout. So sorry for the interruptions, but um, hopefully you enjoy and I look forward to catching you on the other side. Scott Greenberg, welcome to The Disenfranchised. How are you doing today? Good. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I'm, I'm really to ha- happy to have you join me today, Scott. Um, I think you're my first American guest on on The uh, the Disenfranchised. So, um, yeah, hopefully you're going to represent your country really well today. <laughs> no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> None whatsoever. Sorry, America. <laughs> I'm, I'm the best you're going to get. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, look, I'm also pretty excited because I know in a couple of days' time you're going to be speaking with the the BFA in their Leadership in Action conference as a keynote speaker. So, uh, very honoured that you share your time with me today, and um, hopefully, it's a good warm up for you. Uh, well, that's just going to be the follow up for the main event, which is this right here. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much, Scott. So, um, to get us started, um. I always ask all of my guests, what's your first job? What was your first job after education? So my first job after education was working at a Hollywood production company as an assistant. So I was there to focus on the administration and the uh, coffee and croissant needs of two Hollywood producers. And uh, I learned very quickly how much I don't wanna work in an office setting. As much as the idea of Hollywood sounds exciting, uh, at that end of it, it was uh, mainly office work for people who um, were just not people I found very inspiring. So it was it was challenging and I learned a lot and in a way it was a cautionary tale. Um, so that was sort of the first formal job in an office. Uh, however, um, I had previously gone to film school before that and had to drop out because I was diagnosed with cancer. And it's a terrible experience, but another learning experience and spent about a year battling that. And at the end of that, a friend of mine put on a leadership conference, invited me to be the keynote speaker and talk about my experience and how it applied to leadership. It went well, and that led to invitations to give speeches at other places. So my first formal job, I guess, was working at this Hollywood production company. In the meantime, I started getting these invitations to speak and that got bigger and bigger. And I realized, wow, I can go into an office where I don't feel very respected and where I don't enjoy the work and I don't necessarily respect the people I was working for. Um, And again, I certainly was grateful for the experience, but I compared that to another job where I would be getting paid well and could get a standing ovation at the end. And I thought, wow, there's really, and and hopefully make a bigger difference for people. So as both things got bigger, I decided to focus on the professional speaking and have still been doing that now for almost 30 years. So my content has evolved considerably since then, but that really was the first professional experience. Oh, fantastic. So that, that first keynote speech that you did, how did you feel? I'm guessing you're pretty nervous or, or did it come pretty naturally to you? Uh, I felt extremely nervous. 
Um, I did a certain amount of public speaking when I was in high school. I was involved in student government and gave you know, campaign speeches and gave plenty of speeches when I was elected. And I was also on the speech and debate team in high school. So I certainly enjoyed the thrill of the stage, but that has nothing to do with whether or not you get nervous. I get nervous before every single presentation to this day. It just comes with it. I've just learned to accept that. Okay. Yeah, I've heard quite a few people say that before, that you just have to use that energy rather than kind of succumb to it and and and, and panic before the, uh, before the main speech. So that's really interesting. So you say you've done that for 30 years. Is that the, the only thing that you've done in your career or, or what else has, has, um, has been a factor before you found the, the franchising world? So, um, so it's not the only thing that I've done. There's been times where it's been my, my single profession like it is right now. Uh, but there's been other times where I have had uh, other businesses. So uh, a friend of mine uh, who also left film school moved to Los Angeles. We actually started a company um, consulting for screenwriters. And uh, that was actually going quite well for a while. Um, but that got bigger and the professional speaking got bigger. And my friend was starting a family. And after a few years of doing it, we realized, yeah, it's probably time to phase out of that. And he wanted to do something else. And I wanted to focus so I had that business, um, but once we got out of that, then it was just full leadership training, uh, that kind of thing. Excellent. So um, I've read your book that's out that called the, the Wealthy Franchisee, or I've read half of it anyway, as I explained, I'm a, I'm a slow reader, but um, you mentioned in there that your, your, your family um, or your father in particular had um, a background of being an entrepreneur. So did that kind of inform your decision to start that business on your own? Or, or was this something that was, um, I, I don't know, maybe came from your friend or from some other kind of inspiration? Sure. So my father was a serial entrepreneur, starting his own businesses, buying into franchises, that kind of thing. Um, in between, he had various jobs. So my father was a great father. Um, and brought a lot of emotional stability to our household, did not necessarily bring a lot of job security or stability. <laughs> but for me, that was normal. He had businesses that were successful and some that were less successful, but there's always food on the table, some years better food than others, but there's always you know, three square meals a day and we were always safe and have clothes and you know, that kind of thing. And so the idea of taking risks and having your own business in an environment where there isn't job security, for me, that was just normal. So um, starting my own businesses, including as I got into franchising, was just a very normal, calm thing for me. I was okay with that. My wife, on the other hand, uh, not so much. Her father was a college professor. Uh, he's only had two jobs his entire life. He became a tenured professor at the University of Chicago uh, for decades. Then he moved to Los Angeles, became a tenured professor at UCLA where he then retired. He's currently professor emeritus and that was it. So that was her normal life. So when I suggested, um, you know, I was already doing professional speaking. I had that screenwriting uh, consultant consultancy when we met, when I said, Hey, I want to get into franchising. Her head was spinning and she was like, what? And so having to convince her and get her support was probably as challenging as getting the funding and uh, <laughs> choosing the brand and all that. I found that quite curious or quite interesting, actually, because in a way, you're already a business owner, right? I mean, you had a, um, this, this speaking business. And is it that much difference to go into a franchise? And, and yes, okay, maybe there's some investment required, but it's still some of the same risks, you know, still business is, is, is up and down, there's not that steady wage. So um, yeah, how comes in her mind it was more of a challenge than perhaps in, in yours? In her mind, a job is a place where you go, working for other people, ideally for an institution, something that has walls, something that has history, something that has a, an HR department, um, that it just seems solid and stable like a mountain. Now, I believe that that's a perception. Because in a bad economy, plenty of people lose their jobs and you know that, but there's a perception of stability. So in her mind, um, and it's not an unreasonable perspective, you know, that's what a job is. You go and you get a regular paycheck that you can depend on. Um, 
the, the idea of owning your own business is obviously something quite different. I already was a business owner as a, you know, running the consultancy and doing the speaking, you know, when she met me, but at least when she met me, there was the assumption that I already had experience there. I was proving myself. I was paying rent, you know, for my apartment. But when we were married and I said, I want to get into a new business that I know nothing about with people I barely met, the franchisor, this came out of left field for her. And so um, it, it, it was uncomfortable. Yeah. And I, and I guess for you, that was a concept that was already pretty familiar for your, your father, as you mentioned. But how and why did you, you find uh, edible arrangements and, and what, what kind of attracted you to their, their business and their business model? Well, it started off of a, some thoughts that had nothing to do with edible arrangements in the beginning. So I've reached the point where um, I was making a living just doing professional speaking. So traveling around and you know, giving keynote presentations and workshops and the material evolved considerably from where it began. Like I was no longer talking about cancer. I would give presentations about you know, resilience and overcoming adversity and then about peak performance and leadership and it really expanded. And I was always interested in sort of in business audiences, something about that just resonated with me. But it bothered me that a lot of my audience members had a lot more business experience and leadership experience than I had. I mean, yes, I was in student government in high school. That's hardly the same thing as you know what, what business leaders go through. And so it occurred to me that maybe what would be really good for my career is to actually get some real business experience. Um, and if I could do it where I'm running my own business, more of a traditional business, compared to a speaking one where there was employees and ongoing customers and sort of some of the, you know, that, that perception of what a business really is. I can get some of that experience. Well, not only can I hopefully make some money, but I could really get some lessons about leadership and some first person stories that I could put into my presentations. And so as I was entertaining those thoughts, I saw an airline magazine ad for edible arrangements, which really didn't exist in Los Angeles. And there's a picture of this big um, basket of, it looked like flowers, but it was obviously made from fruit. I'd never seen anything like it. And it was a franchise. Oh. And so it really caught my attention. And I thought, okay, that seems like something that would be interesting in Los Angeles. Before I knew it, I was on an airplane and off to a discovery day and uh, fell in love with the business and the concept and the corporate team. And that's when I came home and um, pitched it to my wife. So the goal from the beginning was I was never intended on leaving what I was doing. I wanted to keep doing my professional speaking, but I also wanted uh, to use the business as a laboratory. So for me, it wasn't just about earning. It was about learning, I like to say. And uh, so that was that was the reason why I got into it. And, and I guess that it was a chance for you to kind of prove to yourself that what you were the advice you were giving other people and, and those keynote speeches were actually valuable and, and worked, I guess, uh, for you. Is, is that how you felt? Absolutely. I wanted to go in and see all the things that I had heard, the things that I've been talking about, reading about. Do these things apply in the real world? They do not. I, I was going to say, and did they? <laughs> yeah. Some, some, now, some of them do. And the, I think the, big, the biggest advantage, it wasn't even a lot of specific knowledge, but it was the idea of always taking a step back and thinking about my mindset, thinking about the culture of my employees, those sort of bigger questions compared to just how can I market the business and drive, you know, pull new customers into the store and how can I save in expenses? I asked those questions too, but I always took a step back and thought about the sort of the personal growth side of it and the human side of it. And ultimately that turned out to be the secret to success, which is what I talk about in my presentations is, you know, infusing those things into your operations. And so those things made a difference. But I remember the very first staff meeting, uh, it was not in the store. Um, we rented sort of this big um, open space, uh, like in a, like an, an office setting. And I got a flip chart and markers. And I said, let's brainstorm our values <laughs> and our, our, our working agreements, like these big, broad things. And my employees just stared at me like, what are you talking about? They didn't care that there's no I in team. They weren't going to respond to, hey, turn that frown down. All those motivational cliches just did not work. And so I had to hit the reset button. Uh, I still do that to this day. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that, you know, motivational speakers have been saying for decades, quoting other motivational speakers, quoting books written by people who haven't actually done it. I think there's tremendous value in that. But there is a bit of a disconnect between talking about it, studying it, understanding it and actually doing it. And also, I think, um, so I've, I've been listening to a lot of people that talk about mindset, and, and you're right, some of it doesn't translate into 
practical or tactical kind of um, things that you can use in, in your day-to-day life. But I think that mindset piece is really important because you've got to understand the mindset of an employee and what that is to a mindset of a business owner or somebody who wants to, to grow or develop or, or, or like you said earlier, um, learn. So um, in terms of your staff then, <laughs> how did you start to overcome that challenge of, of, of getting them on board and starting to build a successful business for yourself? I learned very quickly that I could not expect employees to sort of come in at what I you know, believed was sort of this higher level of thinking. I had to meet them where they were at and then slowly work to uh, get them on board with my approach, with my philosophy. So um, I certainly made plenty of mistakes. I hired the wrong kind of people. But over time, I realized it's, it's in, for the kind of work that we were doing, skill set was not as important as their attitude and their mindset. So if I could hire people who had a certain level of enthusiasm, had a desire to learn, had a desire to be a part of something, well, then I can mold them and give them skills, not only to you know, do the actual work, but to grow and to make them leaders. And for me, that was a priority because... I don't want to have to be there. I wanted to be out on the road giving presentations and possibly start other businesses. So I knew very early on, I, it, I couldn't just direct their work. I needed to develop them into leaders. I also knew I couldn't pay them well, um, just based off of you know, what our revenue was, what the business model was, or labor costs that I needed to keep so I could be profitable. So I had to find other ways to compensate them. And what I learned is how much they appreciated being appreciated and how much they appreciated um, personal growth and professional growth and, and really being part of a team that feels like a family that I could afford. So I put a great emphasis on that. And when I did, um, I saw performance go up and retention improved. And it got to the point where we have this incredible all-star team and eventually edible arrangements asking to speak at our annual convention to my fellow franchisees about how to build a superstar team. And I was so proud to be asked about all topics to talk about that because my team really was incredible. And, um, you know, but it took some time for us to figure out how to create that. But they were just unbelievable people. And I'm still in touch with most of them to this day. That's, that, that's probably the, the, the most impressive thing there that, uh, that about your success is that you're actually focusing on the, the staff rather than, like you said earlier, maybe you could just go out and start marketing and trying to, to drum up more business, which I guess is like the, the typical go-to for most people is, okay, what can we do to just get more customers through the door? But you've, you've took, taken a different approach. You've looked at the staff and think, right, how can we make these guys happy, so happy that they're advocates for the, for the business? And then that itself kind of translates into to more energy going out there into the market, I guess, and more people um, happy with your products and therefore referring your business. Um, so th- that's my, my opinion. Maybe that's, that's wrong or right. I don't know. But um, does location play anything into that as well? I mean, were you kind of just lucky in the location that you, you found? It's an interesting question. I thought so at the time. I, I originally wanted a territory closer to my home. It was not available. Someone else had just purchased that territory and was getting ready to develop it. Uh, but there's a territory not far from my home where I used to live and used to do some work um, that is served the area of Beverly Hills and West Hollywood, uh, which are quite affluent um, near a lot of movie studios, near a lot of movie stars, near a lot of healthcare. There's a hospital um, just a block away from where we were. My belief at the time was, well, I'm in this wealthy area. There's all this money. So I assume well, that meant, well, they're going to spend their money at my store. Well, there's a few things. Because it's such a wealthy area, it was less dense. The properties are bigger, bigger homes and more land. So there are fewer people within the territory that I bought. That's number one. Number two, those kinds of people don't buy gift baskets. They receive gift baskets. So... That's something that was different. It turned out the, um, the clientele was less people who live there and more people who would come in to work um, in the areas or commuters who were not necessarily wealthy. But because as in this wealthy area, um, the retail space that we got was extremely expensive. Our rent was much higher than most other edible arrangement stores. There was a lot of vehicular traffic, but not a lot of parking and not a lot of foot traffic. So there were some disadvantages that came with our location. 
a lot of my fellow franchisees didn't understand that. They assumed we're in a wealthy area. Therefore, that is the reason why we ultimately became a high volume store. They didn't pay attention to our online reviews and to the experience we gave to our customers and all the time I put into really caring for and developing my employees. What you described earlier was my strategy from the beginning. I knew that I needed to provide an incredible customer experience so that customers wouldn't just come, but they would come back and would talk on our behalf and would post great things. I knew that that experience was the key to building the sales that I want. So in order to provide the great customer experience, I need to provide a great work experience for my employees. So all of this was, was planned and that's absolutely what translated. And as I look at other businesses and speak to other franchises, I point out the, the correlation between satisfied employees and satisfied customers. Happy employees provide better experience for customers. So I had to start with my team in order to create the experience that I wanted to create the sales that I wanted. Um, but location, I think people place too much of an emphasis. When I wrote my book, and talk to all these incredible franchisees who are making a lot of money, um, I asked them about, you know, and, and really analyze what enables them to succeed. And in the book, I talk about the greatest myths, most common myths, and the top one is that it's location. Wealthy franchisees tend to have good enough locations and they make them great through great customer service. And often they'll acquire struggling locations from franchisees who don't understand this and they'll turn them around. So it's a long answer to your question, but certainly location can help but not as much as providing a great experience for customers. That's interesting. And, and providing that great experience for customers, is, is that not something that's taught by the franchisor? And I'm, I'm guessing that's how maybe they built their success in many cases. So surely that's something that filtered down as part of the, 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 the kind of buying into the franchise of this organization. It, have you seen that in your experience? Or is that actually not really that, that human element, that, that human part of it that's involved in buying a franchise? I'm just Kind of curious to find out your thoughts around that. Not all, but most franchise systems do not do an adequate job of teaching what customer service really is. The intention is there, but they themselves don't necessarily know. As consumers, they'll recognize there's a lot that people don't understand. What I often say in my presentations is there's three factors that impact our performance in a business. There's everything circumstantial, such as the economy, the competition, the pandemic, and other outside forces we don't control. There's everything operational, such as um, our policies and our systems and our sales and our marketing and our recipes, all those things that keep us busy. It's what franchisees pay the franchisors to teach them. And the assumption is, well, that's where, what you need to be successful. But great operations, um, that's not the secret to success. That's the prerequisite. That's just the basic. And you following through, giving customers what they want, that's just you keeping your promise. That's not impressive. There's a third factor which is what really differentiates average franchisees from great ones or who I call wealthy ones. And that is everything human. It's what the franchisee themselves bring to the operations. So that is their mindset and their ability to keep a clear head, their philosophy about business. And then it's also the, their social skills. So their ability to really inspire their employees rather than just direct them, to really partner with the franchisor, to connect with customers rather than facilitate transactions and build cultures rather than just building a staff. So these human elements are ultimately what matters. Customer service too often is looked at as something operational. So a franchisor will teach their franchisees the five steps for customer service. The problem is when you teach it in that form, it becomes robotic. You know, hello, welcome, you know, hello, welcome to Acme Burgers. How can I help you? You say the words, you know, have a nice day. You're saying the words, you're adhering to the script, but that's not the same thing as truly having that desire in your heart to serve. It, it, so too often customer service is treated just operationally. We need to instill in our employees the philosophy of customer service to understand it's not enough to say the words, but to really provide hospitality, to really try to find a way to personally connect to the customer, to understand you're not just there to kill their bugs, to care for their elderly parents, to give them a cheeseburger, you're there to elevate their emotional state, to use that moment to make them feel better than when they came in. Everyone says they're in the people business, but what does that actually mean? To me, it means we use our products and services to elevate their emotional state because customers remember less what they got and more how they feel. So great customer service means you're using your business to make people feel better. Not too many franchisors are teaching that concept. No, and it's, it's it 
then it's then leading me on to think that maybe it doesn't matter so much about the product, right? So if you can come in with the right attitude and build the right culture and, you know, generate this buzz about the experience around the, the experience that the customer has with you and your brand or your products or your staff, that's almost the key. So do you agree that it doesn't really matter on the product or the, the franchise system that you're buying into? I do not. <laughs> I think the system is super important. And I think the product is important. It's what people come to us for. They're not coming to us to say, hey, would you elevate my emotional state? You know, unless you're a psychologist, but otherwise they're not, they're not thinking that deep down, they want that without realizing it, but they're thinking they want the cheeseburger, the oil change in their car, the, the, the product service or solution. So, but delivering that is, like I said, that's just the basic, that's the foundation. We, we have to keep our promise. We have to serve that surface need first, but then to really be great on top of that, then we need to infuse it with the things that create an emotionally satisfying experience. So the product matters, but if you really want to be competitive and want to be memorable on top of the great product, service, or solution, we have to find ways to elevate their emotional state. That's really the key. Awesome. So we've, we've mentioned it a few times, your, your book, The Wealthy Franchisee. Um, what is a wealthy franchisee? What does that look like to you? Very good question. That name is obviously a hook to get people to buy the book in the first place. I was uh, in October, believe it or not, I was scheduled to speak at a live franchise event. It was great to be there. Everyone was in masks. And I was standing by the front row as they were reading my introduction. And on the screen behind me, it had the title, The Wealthy Franchisee. And the woman said, I'm really excited for this because that's what I want to be. So I'm like, okay, good. The hook the in the title mm -hmm. works. It means that you're a franchise business owner and you meet three criteria. The first is the more, most obvious one, that you're making good money based on your investment, that there's a good financial return. But two franchisees can both be making, um, you know, let's say 200,000 pounds a year running their business. But if one of them is doing it working 30 hours a week and the other one is working 80 hours a week, they're not the same thing, you know? And so what's not reflected in our profit and loss statements is the time that we put into the business and the anxiety and the stress and the family functions we missed out on because we're so busy. So the second factor to be a wealthy franchisee means you're in control of your time. You're not a slave to the business that you can leave to have dinner with your family, that you can take vacations, that you have free time or you have time to open up additional businesses. So the franchisee who just buys himself a job and they're constantly busy running it, um, they don't meet the, the characteristics of a wealthy franchisee. So you have to be making uh, good money relative to your investment, that you're in control of your time. And the third characteristic is quality of life. I have met some franchisees who wake up in the morning sick to their stomach, thinking about having to go in and run the business. They don't like it. Other people who really love it or love what the business enables them to do, or they love something about it. Um, their life is better for having a business in it. So all the franchisees who I profile, the ideal franchisee who I try to help all franchisees become is someone who meets all three characteristics. So how can somebody, before they, before they buy into a franchise, how can they almost guarantee, or is there a way that they can almost guarantee that they can become a wealthy franchisee? And that's probably the big question that everybody would like to, to have answered. But do you have any, any thoughts around that? Yes, there is no way to guarantee. <laughs> it, it's, it's business, you're hedging your bets. Now, unlike getting a job where you're helping someone else achieve their dream, running their company, running their business, at least here you have some control. You don't control your circumstances, but you do control how well you execute operations. You do control your relationships with your franchisor, with your vendors, with your employees, with your customers in your community, and you control your own mindset. So there's a lot we have control. And in that way, it's a safer bet, I believe. And especially if you're buying into a proven system and then you stick to that system, but there's no guarantee. There are plenty of people who did everything right in perfect circumstances. And then the pandemic hit and suddenly their business was not allowed to operate. That's not their fault, yeah. but life doesn't really guarantee us anything other than surprises. So there's no way to guarantee it, but you can maximize your chances. And that's what all my work is about 
is helping franchise business owners understand all the things that they can do to put the odds more in their favor. Fantastic. So as a, as a keynote speaker, then you've, you've been to a lot of different franchise brands and spoken at their conferences. Is there anything in particular people can look out for in the franchisors that you believe make them a good franchisor that they can perhaps uh, keep an eye out for when they're, they're, they're going to these discovery days? Yes, such an important question. Um, the most obvious one is that they have a good proven operation. Yesterday, I spoke to a 20-year-old man who wants to buy a franchise. And I have such respect that at 20 years of age, he's already thinking about it and has saved up a decent amount of money to be able to finance most of it and pay cash. So I really respect him for that. Oh, wow. And the brand he's considering uh, has just started franchising and he would be among their first franchisees. And so I had to be very careful about holding my opinions back and just answering his questions. But I think we want a franchisor who has a proven track record. I spoke with one franchisor recently who, if you go to the website uh, of the brand, it doesn't promote the business itself um, for consumers. It promotes the business opportunity for potential franchisees. He's trying to sell franchises, but he has yet to open a single unit. Wow. He himself has not proven the concept or put in his own money to build one, but he wants to now have other people invest their life savings in it. I question that. So I think it has to be a franchisor who has built the business multiple times in multiple markets, proven that not only is it a, can they build a successful business, but they can replicate the systems in different markets so that they can assure us that it's a viable concept. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is it's something that you're interested in, something that you would enjoy, something you wouldn't mind you know, putting a lot of time into. But then beyond that, and th those first two things are pretty obvious, but the less obvious one that I think is critical is to look at the culture of the franchise system. Is it positive? Is it healthy? Do franchisors and franchisees um, communicate well? How are ideas put out there? How do they resolve conflict because it's going to happen? To really get a sense of what that culture is like. That's so important. I see so many franchise brands, so it's a great concept, but they don't do well because the cultural elements aren't there. So is the franchisor granting a franchise to anybody who can financially afford it? Or are they holding out saying, well, that's just where we start, but also vetting franchisees for cultural fit. Do they have the right mindset? Are these the kind of people they want to spend 10 years with if that's the length of the franchise agreement? That's really important. And plenty of franchisors will sell to anyone. And I would say to be more cautious about that. So those are some of the, the, the bigger things that I think we need to pay attention to when considering a concept. I'm really on board with and agree with your last point there. I think um, especially the piece where can you work with these people? Can you work with the franchisor? Because as you say, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be challenges um, throughout your time in business, whether you're setting up your own company or going for a franchise. That's the one thing, as you've already said, you can guarantee life will throw at you is, is surprises and challenges. And if you, if you can't work with the person who's going to help you through those challenges, I think you're onto a loser. <laughs> yeah, well, and some, something else about that. The reason why I say pay attention to the culture and not necessarily the people is, you know, when you're a franchisee and you sign a franchise agreement, you're basically signing it. You personally will be in that relationship for the time of the agreement, maybe, you know, 10 years. But the individuals, the franchisors themselves are not. The brand is saying that they'll be there, but the CEO, the president, the, you know, chief operating officer, they themselves might quit, get fired, get another opportunity somewhere. The, the faces do change. And so you need to be prepared for that. But what sticks around longer than the people are the cultures that they create. Now, over time, a new CEO, new executives can start to shift the culture. Um, but usually the culture lasts longer than the people. So obviously you want to vet the people who are running the company now but what you really want to look at in addition to that is the relationships that exist among the corporate team, among franchisees, and between franchisor and franchisees. So the relationships themselves are what you really want to pay attention to. Fantastic. That's really interesting. And um, in terms of your, your, your time with Edible Arrangements then, so you were there for 10 years. What was your, yes. your kind of exit strategy? And did you have one before you you went into that, that agreement? Yes. Um, my exit strategy when I uh, signed the 10-year agreement was to hang around for about five years, make it profitable, and sell it. So the strategy obviously changed. <laughs> um, and for me, it was 10 years, and I actually signed a second uh, franchise agreement to, you know, to renew 
10 years later um, and then signed the lease. And then within the first year of the second term, I sold the business. And I knew that I wanted to at that point, but I had reached a deadline and hadn't really taken the sales process far enough. So I had to recommit so I could hang on to that location and hang on to the franchise itself with the idea then that I'd be reselling it within the next year. So um, yeah, so what I, you know, what I was thinking going into it and how it turned out to be were, were quite different. But I do think it's important that anybody who enters a franchise system does know what their long-term strategy is, whether they wanna build a business they're gonna keep indefinitely and pass on to their kids, or if they wanna you know, get out at a certain point, it's good to answer those questions so you can plan accordingly. Yeah, sure. And I think it having that exit, strat exit strategy um, stops you from just buying a job as well, doesn't it, in many ways, because some people can just buy into a, a franchise system and think, OK, this is just what I'm doing from now on. And they don't necessarily think, actually, in five years time, this is my plan. I'm going to move on, evolve and change. And uh, I, I think it's really important, the exit strategy side of things. Um, what, one other thing I wanted to ask you before you, you joined it, uh, edible arrangements though you mentioned in your book that you had ideas that the franchisor uh, were missing out on or weren't doing um did did you actually um implement those ideas or or were they ideas they'd already explored and, and moved on from so yeah how 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 relevant were those ideas that you had i had no idea what i was talking about <laughs> a lot of franchisees think they know better than the franchisor uh, causes them to deviate from the system. I'm like, you know, we could incorporate vegetables and not just fruit. And I saw this exotic um, fruit sculpture at some big catered event. And I took a picture and I sent it to the corporate office. It didn't occur as cool as it was, and it was probably expensive. It occurred to me that was probably, you know, cut and created by an artist who spent an entire day compared to you know, hourly workers who are just, you know, making these things very fast in large quantities, got to keep it simple and replicable for a franchise. You know, I, I wasn't thinking in those terms. Um, I had all these ideas, but I hadn't really understood what I was talking about. So I learned very quickly that I need to just listen to the franchisor. That's what I paid. I paid them to be the experts. I paid them to do the testing. So I'm just going to let go of my ideas. I'm going to try to execute at a higher level, but I'm certainly in terms of the product line, I leave it to them. So yeah, all the ideas I had going into it um, weren't so useful. And admittedly, there's a certain amount of ego and cockiness. Um, you know, being a motivational speaker, not that I thought that I was fantastic or better than other human beings, but I thought I had an understanding about the human condition, that I had this like bigger perspective that would really give me an edge over other people. And all it did was it caused me to come in with my cliches and talk to my employees about values and that kind of thing. And that stuff just didn't originally translate. So I had to change my tactics and my approach. So, uh, and, and it, it, I had to be more humble and not make assumptions that there was a lot of other people who weren't motivational speakers who were doing a great job because they understood hard work and they understood how to cut, cut costs. They really understood business. I need, and that's the experience that I needed. So my understanding of personal growth, of mindset and culture, you know, when I sort of tempered that and then combined it with more the desire to learn about business, that's when things really started cooking. Excellent. So let's this kind of bring us, us up to kind of your, your, what you're doing today then. So obviously you released the book, you're a, a motivational speaker, but what, what else do you do um, uh, in terms of uh, earning money for yourself nowadays? Because you, you're not in the, the franchise world per se in terms of owning a franchise, but I think you're involved in the industry in general, aren't you? Yeah, so the work that I do is helping franchisors close the franchisee performance gap and helping franchisees grow their business. So every franchisor you know, has sort of the three levels of franchisees, those top performers, those, those who are really struggling, and that group that's in the middle. And that's really the best opportunity in franchising is that middle group and how to elevate their performance. So I help franchisors make that happen, um, and I help franchisees themselves run their business at a high level and, and make more money. So I do that by giving live presentations. So sometimes that's keynotes and sometimes it's breakout sessions or extended trainings and, and workshops. Um, I do a lot of writing. So I you know write for various publications. And of course I have the book. 
Um, I also do one-on-one coaching for franchisees. So I have a clientele of franchisees who I, you know, we do it via Zoom typically, um, and I'm coaching them. Um, And then I've created something called the Wealthy Franchisee Business Breakthrough Program, where it's basically a 14-week online course where um, franchisees watch uh, videos. It's me um, going through, you know, hard skills content as well as the soft skills um, and there's seven different modules. Each module focuses on a critical area for growing their business. So there's an educational component to it, but more importantly, there's work and action items for them to apply in their businesses. So over the course of 14 weeks, they make all these changes and uh, it's designed to help them grow their business. So it's relatively new. And uh, what's interesting is that most of it has come through franchisors now using it to onboard all of their new franchisees. And so that's how it's really growing. But number of franchisees themselves have come to me directly through. So that's been super exciting. And if I, if I may promote it, uh, that's at www.thewealthyfranchisee.com. So that's another exciting aspect uh, of what I'm doing. So, but basically I'm providing um, content and coaching and assistance to help franchisees grow their businesses. So that's, uh, that's how I pay the bills. <laughs> Excellent. And do you do you miss being a franchisee? Yeah, I, I look. I love what I do, but I liked having a team, and I liked being part of a system. I really enjoyed being part of something and having that challenge, having something you know tangible like this business that I could walk into and see customers coming in and out. Uh, there are a lot of elements about that that I miss. But I really love what I'm doing right now. And to do it well, I need to focus on it. But, you know, an, an opportunity might come along. I've always thought it might be interesting to be a franchisor. Um, but so we'll see what opportunities. I mean, a lot of interesting things are happening now that the book has come out. So we'll see what, uh, how that translates. But, but it's an exciting time right now. I'm very grateful. Fantastic. And um, just going over your kind of whole career that obviously we've, we've gone for a, in a, a, a brief moment or two over the last 30 minutes but um have there been any stories from that that have been kind of entertaining funny or strange that um you'd be happy to share with us from my career yeah from your career as a whole yeah wow uh that's almost like saying hey do you know any great jokes i know a million great jokes (laughs) until someone says tell me one um I'm trying to think. So is it edible arrangements specific or speaking specific that you're asking about? Go for edible arrangements. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if there's any, anything good from in there. Um, you know, what's interesting about edible arrangements is that you have a, a sneak peek into intimate relationships because people are, it's, it's a gift that people are sending and people are putting messages in the card. And so we have been part of people's marriage proposals. We've been part of people's apologies. Um, we've been <laughs> part of people's holidays. Um, I uh, had one situation where I was training a new delivery driver. So I went with him and literally the very first delivery where I demonstrated how it works. We get out of the refrigerated delivery van. I'm holding a fruit arrangement. I explain how we're going to go to the front door. We're going to ring the doorbell. And if they're there and the recipient answers, they're probably going to like scream with excitement because who doesn't love getting this big, colorful gift basket? Someone loves them. And I really kind of built it up. What a great job he has. And so we ring the doorbell. The woman answers and she starts cursing because she's so angry because she hates these things. (laughs) And how dare someone send it to her? So she's screaming and cussing. And my poor new delivery driver has his mouth hanging open because he can't believe it. Um, And then she said, don't you dare tell the person that I responded this way. And then she calls, I simply, you know, they send it to you. So here you go. Then she calls our store 10 minutes later. She doesn't even want it. Well, we come and pick it up and take it to some charity. You know, kind of creating work. So it was the exact opposite experience that he was <laughs> expecting. Um, did he did he stay with you as an employee? Uh, he did. I assured him that, that that was an anomaly. So he got to see how bad it could get. Fortunately, the rest of the day, um, it, it, it was good. Uh, we had situations where, you know, our very first Valentine's Day, a huge, huge holiday in the United States, and certainly for our business, we would do more business in the, the day before and the day of Valentine's Day than the entire year up until that point. Wow. And um, about a week before that, there were torrential rains here in California that just devastated the, the strawberry crop. So the strawberries that came in were hollow. And so typically we'd take a strawberry, we'd put it on a skewer and it just sticks, but it's hollow. So now they're like 
dancing around and it's, you know, anyway, this story is probably more interesting for people who are in the business, but, you know, like all businesses, things that are out of our control would happen. And, um, you know, we'd have to somehow, you know, get through it. So, um, you know, there are all, all kinds of things always, always happening when there's so many customers coming in and out of the store, but I, I, I enjoyed it overall. It was very satisfying and very fulfilling. So, yes, yeah, so, <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot of fun along with the, the the challenges, and I guess that's like you say the same for every business, really, isn't it? Um, just, I've got just a couple more questions um, for you before before we wrap up, and um, the first one is just what's been your kind of most inspirational or, or proud moments um, throughout your career, or maybe time as a, a franchisee. We won an award, Edible Arrangements, for best customer service out of the entire chain. At the time, there were a thousand stores. And that, that was hugely important to me because that's what we really worked towards. I mean, I wanted sales and everything, but the real metric thing I was paying attention to was customer service. And so not only did I love that so that we could tell our customers, we had, you know, we got this big trophy, we put it on our counter, but it really was a testament to what my employees were doing. And it was like, it was their award. They were the ones who were interacting with our customers. And to see how much that meant to them, when we called them from our convention and say, we won, they all started screaming. And so it was so great to have my team be acknowledged for the great experience they were providing our customers. Um, that really, really meant a lot. And the next year, Edible Arrangements created a new award called Manager of the Year. And I nominated my own manager and, you know, every year they give it to someone new, but that first year they could have chosen any manager in the company because no manager had ever gotten it. And they chose my manager. I'm incredibly proud of her for the work that she did. I, but I will take some credit for creating an environment where she could thrive. And so I felt good as a manager of a manager, um, but I also felt extremely lucky to have her. And that was an award that she definitely deserved and was very meaningful. So those were some, some high moments. But every time someone posts you know, an online review talking about what a great experience they got, that was really meaningful. So for me, it was never about building an ego, it was about building a, build, building a business. And when those sort of outside acknowledgements came, it always, it, it, it warmed the heart. Yeah, I love it. And, and, and the way that you've described um, success and what it looks like, um, for a lot of people, it's numbers, it's money, isn't it? You know, and, and actually achieving the biggest revenues or incomes or net profits, whatever it may be. But um, one thing I've really enjoyed in, in reading your, uh, well, the first half of your book is that actually it's more about um, people, emotions, and as well as the money, you know, that's, that's still as I always believe that's a secondary thing that's, it's, it's important and enables those other things as well. But um, I love the way that you kind of describe it with uh, different analogies as well throughout the book. So um, speaking to you, I've already felt like um, I've learned quite a bit and, and looking at things in a different perspective. Um, but one question, the final question I wanted to ask you is if you could just take one piece of advice and make sure that this is the person, this is the thing that the person listening to this podcast takes away with them when perhaps they're considering buying a franchise, what would that be? If you want to succeed in franchising, whatever brand you choose, you need to do these three things. Keep a clear head so you're objective, not running with emotion. Um, stick to the proven system. Trust your franchisor. And the third thing is use your business to improve the lives of everyone it touches. Your vendors, your employees, your customers, your community. Those three things. Keep a clear head. Stick to the system. Use the business to improve the lives of others. If you do those three things, you're going to put the odds much more in your favor. Fantastic. Scott, it's been excellent speaking to you. I really appreciate you sharing your time. Good luck with uh, your upcoming keynote speeches and um, hope we can catch up again soon. I hope so. This was great. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you very much, Scott. There we go. That was my... So there we go. That was my interview with Scott Greenberg. Um, wow, there's so much information in there and I, I feel like this wrap-up is going to be quite a long one because um, Scott just gave such a great insight and you can tell he's an utter professional in, in delivering talks like this. But um, I've, I thought it's really interesting to see that actually his, his family were, 
were entrepreneurs and that was his life and I guess it was ultimately always going to be a path that he followed but interesting that it ended up going into franchising I mean yes he started his own business but a good chunk of his career 10 years is dedicated to one franchise brand which uh, maybe much to the dismay of his uh, wife was um, a risk but one that he obviously believed in that, that he could make an impact and um, that then kind of moved on to him realizing that all that theory that he'd been teaching other people whilst it was you know useful in some ways actually in real life there was a, a, a really big difference between that theory and, and actual uh, being in a business and delivering that yourself and um, something that I'd always kind of thought was the case but it was, it was kind of good to hear from him that yeah reality is slightly different um, the other thing that was really impressive about what he's done with his uh, franchise or with his the franchise he had was the way he focused mainly on his staff and then uh, on how that would deliver in terms of customer service and I think that's something that can be used uh, or the the advice can be used for any brand you know ultimately at the end of the day whether it's b2b or b2c uh, business that you buy into or, or move into it's all about people and if you can make people feel or have some some good emotion from from what you're providing to them that's that's something to aim for and something that's ultimately going to lead to some success for you um, other things that I thought were really interesting from what he said were the three qualities of a wealthy franchisee. So um, earning a decent amount of money uh, in proportion to the amount that you've invested. Uh, it's not always easy to kind of look at that before you buy into a franchise, but if you can some way quantify that beforehand, that's, that's kind of useful. But um, in control of your own time, again, I think this is one that everybody or quite a lot of people look for when they're they're wanting to be an entrepreneur or build their own business um actually having control of that time though is something different and uh if that means for you part-time hours then find something that's going to offer you part-time hours if it's something that means you know keeping your evenings to yourself you know find a business that's going to allow you to do that and then finally quality of life you know are, are you actually enjoying what you're doing is allowing you to do the things that you want to do all really important and it's it's interesting because you know wealth so often people think about as as just being that money side of things when when really it's it's much more than that other things that personally i've really learned a lot from from speaking with scott was um that the culture of a brand is really important i've, I've always kind of said that it's important to know who's going to be supporting you as you build out that business when you're you're buying into a franchise or anything because um, yeah there's going to be difficult times you need to to challenge each other and and find um, solutions to the challenges you may face but actually sometimes franchise staff or franchise or staff uh, come and go and that's that's the reality of employment I guess um, but if the culture's there if the culture's strong within the brand that's something that's going to transpire throughout your whole license. So uh, there's, there's so much more stuff that I could kind of mention in, in, in what Scott said there. And of course, you can refer to his book that he mentioned a few times. And I'll put that link in the comments. But um, hopefully you've got something out of that. I know I learned uh, a heap of stuff there. And it's really awesome getting to know Scott better. So um, thank you so much for your time. Um, and um, yeah, look forward to catching up with you on the next one. Take care.